Hey, welcome to Bedside Matters, the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact all of us every single day. We're hopefully going to give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper. David, how are you? I'm very excited. We have a very special guest today. Yes, we do. Anna Vicino is with us. I am not the special guest, just for clarity. I'm Peter Tilden, also obviously not the special guest, but today's special guest, I guess we should get right to it. Charlie Day is part of and co-creator of, well, I guess it's the longest running live action comedy in American TV history. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which is pretty, pretty amazing. Also helped co-create Mystic Quest, right? Mm-hmm, that's correct. Here goes the you know him from Pacific Rim, Horrible Bosses. He does animated voices for a million cartoons. And uh, here he is, Mr. Charlie Day. How you doing, Charlie? Thanks for having me. And uh, David, thanks for keeping me alive. And thanks for keeping Danny alive so we could keep the show on the air for as long as possible. <laughs> By the way, one of the things you didn't mention in all the things that he has done is that he is an amazing father. So I know this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. but well, I appreciate that. But there's a human side to this guy. So Your son is what, around 12, I'm guessing? Almost. He's uh, 12 in December. Is he allowed to watch It's Always Sunny? Is he of the age yet where you allow him to watch that? He's got to know. <laughs> he, they know. He has zero interest. You know, uh, I think he's still into just Minecraft. And and he, he was really into kids' cartoons, but now he wants to watch other people playing Minecraft on YouTube. So this is what the kids do. So, By the way, isn't that amazing when you grew up? I remember I used to ride my bike everywhere. I used to run around everywhere. Now you're watching other people yeah. Do inactive activities that are not active. That's right. Yeah. The 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 disease that's plaguing us all is the is the internet. Well, and David, that's the inactivity of that age. How active is your kid at 12? Does he go? He's he, pretty you... active, which is good. I mean, he's always jumping around and running around. And um fortunate for him, I don't know where he gets this. He must get it from his mother. He likes long distance running. He's going to be an endurance kid. That will serve him well in life if, yeah. he, if he sticks with that. So I'm curious, David, you know, his, his his book is all about brain chemistry. And I'm curious, David, does that manifest when a kid does long distance running? Is that him having a brain chemistry thing, like a dopamine thing where he's trying to run off? He's going toward that because of a certain brain chemistry thing that he knows he needs to do. Well, I think in Russell's case, it indicates that he's trying to get away from home. I think that's what this is. Um, but yes, I mean, that kind of activity, everything comes back to brain chemistry. But the idea that somebody wants to stay stimulated is, in fact, a dopamine-related issue. So we all get these dopamine and serotonin behaviors, but uh, absolutely, <laughs> Um you tend not to see people that have the opposite brain chemistry um, get off the couch. So, yes, this is just part of his profile. So when you have a patient come in, David, do you ask them about that, about what they what exercises they like? And you can pick up from what they're doing, what their brain chemistry is or what deficit they may have. There are three or four questions that I will ask that will immediately clue me into who I'm talking to. And one would be, uh, are you impulsive do you have impulse issues are you one that needs immediate gratification are you one that is a big picture person or are you into the weeds on things uh, do you lay awake at night worrying and can't go to sleep or do you not go to sleep because you're too busy trying to 
not miss anything. So these are things that, that filter out into these uh, brain chemistry imbalances. But what's interesting about this is not so much who we are, but how we can actually modulate that, that these reflex behaviors that we have, and they're inherited, this brain chemistry is inherited. Charlie, this isn't as quite as funny as you thought it was going to be, is it? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of funny. I've been doing funny for too long. Let's uh... let's get serious. The point is, and then we should move on to our guests, but I think the point is, is that people don't think that they can change these reflexes and change these behaviors, but that's frankly what the book's about. It's you absolutely can. And it's just a matter of recognizing what your reflexes are, seeing the ones that get you into trouble and trying to correct those. I, I never thought of that, that that behavior kind of tips your brain chemistry. But then looking at a guy like Charlie, the reason Charlie's on is because you write, you produce, you do. Were you always, Charlie, that active? And, you know, a lot yeah, that of was my question. And, and how do you maintain that pace of life? Because you're doing a lot. Well, I think I probably, I, I'm not, I certainly haven't been diagnosed with anything, but I think I, had I been in my youth, would have fallen into one of these dopamine imbalance categories, whether it was uh, ADHD or even high functioning ASD. I'm not sure. Uh, who knows? I don't know. Um, I sort of feel in my life, I managed to, maybe what I, I need to read David's book, but managed to sort of have a good picture about it and and an understanding of it and then find what worked for me, which were usually creative fields. So I would um, have a complete inability to focus on things that were not interesting to me and, uh, and hyper intense focus on things that I liked, whether it was, um, you know, writing or making music or even now later in life playing golf. So I was able to sort of really uh, channel that. And, and fortunately there was an outlet for me, you know, the, in, the uh, in show business, um, because I just wasn't going to make it as an accountant. So Charlie, I, I bet math was hard, right? It was. Yeah. Excruciating. I'm like you and like Peter math builds on itself and you have to pay attention from the first grade to get all these things in order. And then the second grade you're built. So, a lot of people that have these dopamine imbalances are not good in math. So if you look at your your example, if you if you think about your accountant, that person probably didn't have a dopamine issue. Thank God for us. Wow. That yeah. person probably thought class wasn't long enough. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> this class should be more boring. It really interferes with executive functioning, right? And then that so much of that is executive functioning is sort of laying out concrete steps to get to an end result. And I think a a brain that's wired differently uh, doesn't see life in such steps and ladders, but sees things more uh, amorphous and uh, which, which in many ways life is, you know? Uh, so I think that's why you find a lot of people in the arts uh, with that sort of brain makeup because they're able to yeah. uh, tap into other ways of looking at things. Well, and also the pathway in the arts, the career pathway, it's different for everybody. So it almost is good for all of our brains that we don't have because there's no, there's no exact steps to follow. That's right. Yeah. And you're constantly stimulating that side of your brain and, and ignoring the other side. <laughs> it's, it's also fascinating how this relates to the people closest in your life. So Mary Elizabeth, is she more like you or is she more the opposite of you? No, I think she's more like me. I, in fact, I think 
the more I've come to understand it, and I think I've come to understand it through parenting, you know, when you have a child with similar neural makeup and and you're trying to help them get through the world, you start to look back at your own childhood and it answers a lot of questions. That, oh, okay. I must've been <laughs> similar in some ways. And then you start to look around at the friends you keep and the people you know, and you, you see a pattern and gosh, most of the people I know seem to navigate the world in this similar way. Of course, you really can't squeeze people into a box. I think everyone, you know, has a, is on the, let's say spectrum of how their brain makeup is that, um, you know, informs who they've become. I sometimes think about it like this, which is that every interaction I have, everything I see, everything I hear, everything I listen to goes into the brain and just, it the brain takes in that information and then changes and const is constantly changing in that it's hardwired to maybe process it in a certain way, but you start to form a brain, which is maybe different than someone who's been taking in different information and processing things in a different way their whole life. And I seem to have found, or maybe it's just having a life in the arts, that most of the people I know tend to fall closer into the box of this type of neural makeup. Well, again, you grew up, we should, we should give some background here too. Both your parents were musicians. I mean, they both were creative. So you grew up in the musical house, you all, same with me. And that's really impactful, I think. Plus you play a lot of instruments. Yeah. I don't think people know that. So that's a whole side of the brain that's all, that's engaged in a different way already. That's correct. They're both music teachers, so slightly more academic, although I, I remember my mother saying that she had struggled in school. Um, but then they found a way to make it work because they both have their doctorates in musicology from Columbia. So they're, they're pretty smart. You know, uh, and my so my mother, she just taught music to kids kindergarten through eighth grade, and my dad taught at the local college in uh, in our town in Rhode Island. So they did have that academic capacity. But yes, I also was exposed to music and instruments from a young age. In fact, I was just with some people, and I was doing a thing on the piano, and uh, one of the women afterwards was saying, "You know, how do you how do you do that? Like, I how do you?" just come up with a song and just have that ability. I said, well, I've been around it for 47 years and dabbling in it. So for me, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's not an unfamiliar territory and I find myself completely limited in it where I think uh, I will meet some musicians who have that sort of mathematical thinking, who are able to read the notes in the sheet music, who really understand the difference between an E7 and a D major seven. And that was always gobbledygook to my brain. You know, my ear could hear it, but then having to put it in more formal notation and understand that, I, found, I always found that extremely challenging. Well, that's the math part of it. It was very limiting to me as a musician but you found comedy as as your as your so with two columbia parents first season of uh it's always sunny as they see the pilot and what the, <laughs> top, like, what what? the subject matter is <laughs> What's he doing? they want to hang you or hang themselves when they said oh my god <laughs> they were uh you know they're they're east coast new york kind of kind of smart you know i won't say they're hip but they're not uh they're not uptight so they i think they, they were, got it they, they got, got it right it. away yeah you know, I'm looking down in here and you look and you see that it's 16th season. 
So yeah. incredible. Is it is there a life cycle to this thing where I really enjoyed the first year because we got picked up and then the first five were great. And then I wanted to hang myself year seven through nine. Then it got <laughs> easy again. And now we're out of story. I mean, Dan Castellanet is a friend. Mm-hmm. They're into a 30, 30. I said, Dan, we always try and pitch stories. I don't know. And he how always says, did that. it, did it, did it. How do you, I how know. do you come up with stories? Oh, we're running out of them. It's we we are. <laughs> we are. I mean, the last <laughs> the last couple seasons of the show has been really difficult to to break a story that doesn't feel as though we've done it and and to have a storyline for a character that doesn't feel like you know um old and uh it's challenging. It's challenging. I, the one good thing is that well, I won't say it's a good thing, but the one reality of the business is that we don't have large episodic orders anymore. So th- this last season, we only did eight episodes. So we sort of figure, okay, we can come up with eight. <laughs> you know, yeah, we can at we least do this. that. Yeah. But do you bring in people who've had experiential stuff, other writers to say, tell us, I mean, Seinfeld was all about people's lives. You know, I know so many of those writers and a lot of that came from the writers real preceded large hands, whatever. Those were from people's real life experiences. Do you yeah, ever sure. you go through a day and you go, oh my gosh, this is we finally got an episode. Absolutely. I mean, we've had lots of people throughout the years who aspects of their childhood or their parents wound up in, in an episode. And, you know, um, there was one writer we had for years that uh, pretty much ha- had wild stories about his father and half of them we just poached and and, you know, <laughs> and, and, and gave to Danny. That's great. And by the <laughs> way, the the thing I can't unsee out of all the episodes, and I'm from Philadelphia, so there's kind of an affection toward the show anyway, you know, even though you don't have the Philly accents because then no one no, would understand you know, and anything. When we, when we made it, we debated, do we do the Philly accent or not? And we thought, no one's going to know what we're doing and we're going to get That's canceled in a, in a month. <laughs> the thing I can't unsee out of all the episodes is Danny DeVito coming out of the sofa naked. We'd read an article about people smuggling themselves into the country by sewing themselves into furniture. And um, we were- That's now a QAnon theory, by the way. (laughs) They smuggle, (laughs) they human traffic that way. But you guys were ahead of the curve, so. Yeah, sure. I mean, it was just something that was happening. So we we thought, okay, that's a a funny concept of someone wanting to be sewn into a couch. And then- um, and the idea of it being a leather couch and it getting too hot in there and him deciding to take his clothes off. And then, and then the idea of like, it's seeming like he was being birthed out of the couch. That's <laughs> and then exactly. that's just one of those things that you can't believe Danny says yes to. And then in addition to that, uh, when you actually shoot it, you know, you, it's surprising to everyone that it actually looks as funny as it looks. And, um, it was stunning. It was like the Naga yeah, High couch giving birth to Danny DeVito. I'm sure you didn't have much trouble talking him into that. That's my <laughs> guess. He's a pretty good yeah. sport. You know, he had to be basically uh, in the nude with the exception of a sock, uh, you know, in front of a room full of extras, all who know who he is for the last, you know, 40 years. Uh, so it takes some real bravery and some some real guts to do that. So you're doing how many, eight this year. But I know working on a sitcom, I've worked on sitcoms, people don't realize how unrelenting that is. I mean, the writer's room can sometimes go to, I don't know yours, but go two in the morning, three in the morning, and it doesn't matter. You just have to churn out stuff. How, so how do you deal with the stress? We never kept a schedule like that. So we never were writing as we were filming. So we would sort of schedule it that we would block out months in advance to write as much of the season as possible. Usually we would have one 
worst case scenario, maybe two left over that we hadn't finished because we were actors in the show as well. So yeah, we wanted to just get everything done first, more like a film. And then we go and we shoot the thing and then we're in the editing room. Um, this last season, I think we ran out of time. So we were writing on the fly, but that just means that I'm writing on the weekends and sending pages to Rob and he's sending them back and um, just getting it done that way. I'm going to say this too, because I've guessed it on your show and I've guessed it on a lot of shows and there are different energies to different shows, different sets that you go on to. Everyone was so amazing and so nice. And I'm not saying this because you're here. I tell this to everybody, like the best experiences I've had on different shows. Always Sunny was like, it just had a really like good, positive environment on the set. I think that comes from the top. And I think uh, we were lucky that um, even though like anyone, you know, Robin, Glenn and I all have our quirks, but uh, there's no real bad eggs. There's no real tyrants in the group. And uh, so also generationally, uh, Danny was a good example. You know, Danny didn't come in the show and, and, and said about Tony either. So as, as young people in the business getting their start, he was a really good example of, of how how to be famous and how to carry the weight that you have on he was on amazing set. yeah he's just lovely and and then also i think that's there's a generational thing i you don't see as much of that i think with my generation and younger that you would hear about uh the generation above us and i think that might just have to do with the fact that <clears throat> there's so many more outlets and opportunities that um you're never too big a deal. <laughs> you know, like for any one TV show, there's 300 more. I think maybe, you know, when Danny started and, and Taxi was on the air and he was on one of the three stations that had television, uh, there was maybe more stress involved with that, but then there was also an imbalance of um, how big a deal, you know, any one individual could be. So I think by the time you get to our generation, you know, I know it's like if I'm too much of a jerk on set, there's about a hundred other guys that they can go to instead of me for the next movie. So but also I'm not inclined to be that way, but I think that's part of the vibe I get from you and all you guys is just that like you sold this show. It's an amazing opportunity and you just really have run with it all these years. Like it's just, it's super cool to watch. And yeah, I mean, that's gotta be something as far as like having good brain chemistry, right, Doc? I'm trying to tie this back in, but like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Setting up a good environment and a place where there's a lot of moving parts, like you need to be able to manage that. Yeah, and I won't, look, there's been plenty of tension on set and stress over 16 years of making something. Of course. Fortunately, just not too much of it. How do you settle arguments, by the way? Is there, you know, it's like the Beatles, Paul was the one who stimulated them to get in the studio to work. Who's Paul? Who's George? Who's Ringo? Oh, that's I think yeah. just by the the pure luck of that, there were three of us. So it was always a democracy. So, you know, if I felt very passionate about a storyline and Robin Glenn disagreed with me, well, I was overruled. And, you know, that would just, sometimes it was Rob feeling away and Glenn and I saying, no, we don't think you're right on this one. Or, or Glenn feeling away and Rob and I saying, just trust us on this. And it's sort of that, you know, it would just sort of go around the horn. Occasionally, if you were really passionate, you could convince the other two. <laughs> you could you could win them over. But if you can't, then you have to go with, um, you know, you have to trust your partners and and uh, 
and go with the majority rule there. And it served us very, very, very well. In fact, there was one. You're not holding grudges. You're not holding no. like a, okay. No. And every season we would get into one, let's sit down and have a hash this out and have a good conversation about process and respecting each other. And we would have very adult <laughs> conversations and then we would move forward. Um, I think just by the pure luck of it being three of us, I think if it was if it was four or two, it would have been so much more difficult. As you become more and more successful with this show, and it becomes now it's iconic. What are this? What's the stress from that experience? In other words, you're getting mm -hmm. there's got to be a, an intrinsic stress to that that not everybody gets to yeah. pressure. Have. Yeah, I think in the beginning there's the stress of you know do we know what we're doing and is this going to work and are we even going to get it done? You know, I think then once you know what you're doing to to a degree and you know that you can accomplish it in these later years the stress for me is more is this still good you know am i trying to throw a fastball and it's coming out 50 miles an hour um are we repeating ourselves and then bigger grander questions of you know did i stay here did i overstay my welcome here and should i have gone and done movies and and things that are things that are self-designed and not actual, right? So I think then I'm always able to say, look, this is still a huge opportunity just to be given the chance to do it. It's eight episodes. Do the best that you can. Um, so the the stresses are different. And then, you know, balancing um, our careers outside of Sunny. I think this last year was tricky. Rob has his Welcome to Wrexham TV show about the soccer team that he bought in uh, in Wales with Ryan Reynolds and um, Glenn and I were both uh, finishing movies and I had written directed a movie and was trying to get that done in in post so uh, you know it's more <clears throat> balancing that and balancing being parents but fortunately it's not been too stressful we keep great hours we're like a family with the crew sometimes for the best sometimes for the worst where you're like oh old uncle louie again is you know not holding the camera right away <laughs> but but really we everyone loves each other on the set and um it, we're just very fortunate to get to do something for this long so can we do a bit of a lightning round here charlie of course, we're through a bunch of stuff to find out ready so here we go uh healthiest thing you do I laugh a lot. Least healthy thing you do. I don't mindfully eat at times when I'm stressed. That was very eloquently put. Overeat, undereat, or just anything that's around. If it is getting stressful in the writer's room and there's a bag of chips, I'm gonna I'm gonna eat more of them without even realizing I'm putting them in my mouth. Kind of a behavior. You're going for it. What do you do to relax? Uh, I play golf. Your worst injury? Well, I did a movie called Fist Fight with Ice Cube and I developed really bad sciatica and I was having a chronic pain in my left hip. And I think, you know, I went and I got MRIs and they said, I have impingements on both sides and we can get into this. And um, I read the Sornos book uh, about sitting with your pain and um, about neural plastic pain and about the fact that, okay, here's an example. If I was a hypnotist and I told you your arm was on fire, you would feel real fire. You would feel real pain. That pain would not be unreal to you. So he, the book was saying that I'm not saying your pain isn't real. I'm not saying that your hips aren't tight, but I am saying that your you might have healed from your injury, and that 
uh, your pain is like a false alarm. It's going off to protect you, but you're in a fight or flight uh, response with your pain. And I thought this was a bunch of gobbledygook, but I figured I'd try it. And um, I sat with my pain and I sort of, you know, I thought, okay, it does kind of move a little bit. And he's, the book said, you know, the second you start doing this, it's like uh, taking a piece of cheese away from a mouse that's been hitting a buzzer each time you have pain and you're going to feel crazy pain because that mouse is hitting the buzzer saying, give me the cheese, give me the fear, give me the fear that you're going to be in pain the rest of your life. And I thought, well, okay, I'll try this. My hip hurt like crazy that week. And then after that, it started not hurting that much. And now I, w- I can say with complete honesty that that chronic hip pain is 100% gone. Um, and even I had a place on the side of my hip that if I was getting a massage, I would jump off the table if someone hit it. I Gone completely gone. And that's not to say, you know, if I play a bunch of golf or I was just moving a bunch of boxes uh, a month ago and my hip like got tight and pinged a little bit. But if I don't go into that fight or flight mentality with it, where I think, oh no, I'm going to be in pain the rest of my life, it completely dissipates and goes away. So from craziest injury, and that's a health story towards healing that health. And Look, I have plantar fasciitis. My feet are sore. I haven't been able to think that went away, but with like with the hip pain, it just went away. And is that and I'd love David to weigh in too. How do you what's what's that feel like when you? What's the process of making the pain go away? Of not giving it credence? You know what I mean? Well, it was it was like it's like meditating, right? It's it was sitting with it when you start to feel it and really like looking at it objectively. Say, okay, what is my pain? Where do I feel it? Um, and being a little bit of a detective with it. Does it move? Does it shift around? Um, this book sort of was giving an example of uh, people who have been like in car accidents, but who's the, their skeletal muscle situation has healed, but they keep feeling the pain because of the trauma of the accident. And it was interesting. I was able to I was able to sit with it and say, okay, it's there in my left hip. It kind of sometimes it's in the middle of my hip. Sometimes it's higher up uh, towards. Uh, sometimes it's towards the front a little. And I thought that that is interesting that it shifts around. Um, another example the guy gave was like sometimes there are stories of carpenters stepping on a nail and it goes through their boot and they're screaming in pain. They rush them to the hospital and they cut the boot off and they realize it's actually between their toes and and not in their foot. Uh, that the, the brain is just powerful enough to um, exacerbate uh, a situation. So I think in the case of my hip, I think I, I had injured it. I'd gotten some sciatica. I'd gotten tight. I do have uh, impingements on both my hips, but I've probably had them all my life. Um, I have played a lot of sports. I am rotating on my hip constantly. Uh, so like the groin the hip flexors, they get tight. Um, but I think I was the, the trauma of how badly it hurt. And then people telling me I was going to have to have these surgeries in my late thirties. Um, I think it made, it, it just was like fuel on the fire of what pain was there. And I think once I was able to clear all that out and say, okay, well, what's really going on years later? I mean, I've been with it for years and gone to trainers and physical therapists. I think it was, I think my hip had pretty much healed from the filming and um, what was left over was natural tightness uh, for a man who was 
I guess I did this about a year and a half ago. So I was like maybe 46 at the time. Natural tightness, natural tightness for a guy who's who uses that hip joint a lot, but not to the point of injury. And then I think just turning off the alarm system. And anytime I sort of felt that said, okay, I thank you, body. I I I hear that you're sending me a warm uh, a warning signal, but I, I got it. It's okay. I was really able to undo it. David, what do you think about that as far as different? I'm, I'm getting different pain thresholds for people. There are people who can do amazing things as far as pain doesn't bug them, and then others who have no threshold for pain. The the brain is fascinating. It's it and it is as Charlie said. It's plastic. You can change how you perceive these sense the sensory input. Think about people that have a phantom pain. They've had an amputation. And they continue to feel pain in that side. But pain is processed all over the brain. It's processed in your in your memory system. It's processed in your amygdala, how, how are, we are emotionally when we're upset by anything. And these fibers are so complicated. I mean, we, we really don't understand this like we should. But to Charlie's story, you can, in fact by looking at things very differently. And it takes some habit formation. You had to practice this over time. So that week that your hip was really bothering you, you stuck with it and you didn't turn to other modalities and, and it changed. So I think, I think the way we process pain, the fact that it's, it's plastic, look, look what happens with the opiate situation. People come into an office or an emergency room and they're in pain and they want opiates. Well, because of the opiate crisis, we're not giving opiates as a first-line medicine. We're giving, and this was, these were studies that were done in several major hospitals where people would go into the emergency room and they were told they were getting painkillers and they were getting Tylenol and Advil. They weren't getting opiates and they responded great so that the the idea of what you're getting, the idea of what your your expectations are. So yeah, it's very complicated. But that's uh, the and pl I, whole placebo effect, right? That's that's when you give people placebos, they can actually start forming neural pathways that didn't exist before that take them to a positive place. It actually shows up physically, correct? Yes. Yeah. No. It's 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 perceptual. It's in fact somewhat real because it's got to protect you. Pain is there to protect you. But it's very complicated. And when you, when again, go just going back to addiction, when you see how people are addicted to not only the physical pain of a, let's say it's a back condition and someone gets hooked on opiates, let's say it's an emotional issue and people are hooked on substances that mute that emotional reaction. These are all forms of pain and they can all be they can all be mitigated. It's really fascinating. Charlie, I think the book that you mentioned is really interesting. Yeah, this book was called The Way Out. Um, I forget the author, but, it was, but it, so it wasn't Sornos's book, but uh, same sort of um, mentality. But yes, it, it was it was fascinating. I think you said it right, right there, which is that um, pain is there to protect you, but sometimes you, you don't need the protecting. Alan Gordon, The Way Out. Yeah, that's right. He was saying, look, you might have very real pain and you need a surgery, um, but you also might not. So why don't you be a little bit of a detective with your pain and and try to find out? Anything to tell Charlie about his plantar fasciitis? <laughs> <laughs> I, I got the orthotics in and I, I, I'm always in sneakers and that seems to help a lot. 
is golf exercise? Are you driving around in a car? Do you carry? No, golf is not exercise. Now, I, I also go to the gym. With a time commitment. How do you do that? Isn't your mind halfway through based on what we talked about before going, yeah, I think this is getting a little long now. Um, no, it's one of those things that I'm able to just focus on so completely while I'm doing it. And the, the beauty of it for me is that you you really, I mean, to do it well, you just really have to be thinking about what it is that you're doing. So it's a way to not think about work or or uh, life or anything like that. It's just I was, the last question I'm going to ask you in the lightning round is what changed about you during COVID? Because we all experienced it a different way. Oh, what, wow. What, yeah. I'm not sure. It was difficult to navigate from a parenting standpoint, although I found that I liked I liked being at home. I think I have a tendency to have an anxious mind, although I've done a lot of work on that, too. Uh, and that sort of feeling of containment uh, is is, uh, you know, quiets an anxious mind. Uh, so um, I found that uh, I liked stopping for a second and saying, OK, let's just let's just shut shut it down. There's nothing to do. I don't know if I was changed in any profound way. I'm 47, so I, I haven't been through, uh, obviously, a pandemic. But look, I was in New York on September 11th, and then there's two, there's a COVID. So if anything, it's just a reminder that whatever generation you're living in, it could be Vietnam or World War II, you know, it could be uh, the Great Depression. It was just a reminder that you're going to be going along your business and then something completely out of your control is going to um, completely transform life, either very directly or indirectly. So if anything, it was a good reminder to just relinquish the false concept of control, which you really don't have any control um, uh, over the big picture, you know. And it relates back to, as I'm hearing it, to what you said before about how to deal with the pain, how to deal with situational stuff, too. It's kind of similar. What you choose to tell that story about, is it every day and I'm going to project what the future is going to be or just live, you know, the old book, be here now? We're the products of the stories we tell ourselves, you know. Um, do you guys ever play Wordle on the New York Times uh, app? I don't. So my wife all night long. It's all day long. It's unbelievable. Her and my son compete and do this thing. Yeah. Well, I mean... That so funny mary elizabeth was playing it a lot and i i thought okay you know i should try but i was telling myself the same old story from like school well it's you're terrible at school stuff and uh, you know you're you constantly are misspelling things when you're writing scripts so you're going to be terrible at wordle and uh you know i think the first two times i played maybe i won once and lost once and then after that i realized oh no this is just problem solving it's not it, and and now it's like the easiest game in the world and it's funny because I really caught myself telling myself a story that isn't a reality, you know, is that that's we think we have these limitations. And sure, look, I, I'm not going to dunk a basketball, but there are other things that you might be telling yourself you can't do that you absolutely can do. And some of them might be health related. One of the things that happens, too, when people grow up having trouble focusing in school is that they take on a persona of being stupid, that they're just not as smart, that they, they can't compete academically. And a lot of people give up. And you take kids that are now 10 years old and they've been dealing with this for five years in school. 
and you give them, and I, I don't think medicine is the answer to everything, but medicine does help people focus, especially kids. And I think this is where it does have a, a, a lasting effect. And that the self-esteem issue that happens when, when kids growing up feel inadequate, that filters into everything else that happens as their life goes on. So it, it is interesting how your first reaction when you're talking about Wordle is that you weren't good in school, therefore you're not going to be good at this. You're 47. So this is a few months after kindergarten. You're still feeling <laughs> this reflex. Yeah. And I think, and I think the the message there is for parents: if your kids are struggling and you're seeing that they're not focusing, and um, do something about it. Don't be afraid of these treatments. You're not going to withhold insulin from your kid if he's diabetic. Don't withhold a neurotransmitter that is safe and needed, and the world will have, you know, a lot fewer Charlies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's true. And they and they um, you know, they have all sorts of medications uh, you know, that aren't like a speed-based one anymore, you know, for these kids that uh, you know, are very effective. We've seen it in our own household and it's been amazing. That's great. Well, thanks for coming. Thanks for going on. Any last thanks, questions? Charlie for Charlie Day. Oh man, I could talk to you guys forever. I mean, I feel like we only scratched the surface of things to talk about. You'll have to come back. Anytime. David, any last questions or thoughts? I just really want to thank you, Charlie, for all the time you spent. And it was really interesting to, you know, explore your your history a little bit um, in ways that I don't always explore with you. So uh, you're very generous anyhow, and this was really wonderful for us. And I know our listeners are going to really enjoy hearing the inside of Charlie Day. I agree. And I got to say thank you because I like hearing how people who have creative brains, how they make their brains work. Because sometimes, you know, you're knocking around alone and writing stuff or creating stuff. And it's just good for folks to hear how you make it work. So thank you. Yeah. Well, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah. Thank you for being on. It was really joy. Good seeing you again. Yeah. Thank you all. Talk to you soon. Thanks, David, Charlie. let's grab dinner. Okay, Charlie. Thanks, thanks man. Love you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Great. Bye-bye. The information on bedside matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on bedside matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.